Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today is Bruno Larvol. He's a serial entrepreneur, being the founder and CEO of Larvol, a virtual reality company that provides software as a service solutions to, I believe, uh, 150 uh, Fortune 500 companies. And uh, though his most intriguing enterprise that he's a co-investor of is RxXO, a company that operates exclusively in the metaverse and uh, has a uh, interesting take on virtual assets. So I'll give you a clue. Um, he has a uh, penchant for diamonds, soft spot for them. So we'll, we'll explain that. Bruno, thank you for joining us. Bonjour. Thank you for joining us all the way from San Francisco. And, uh, you know, happy to have you on the show. Well, we met recently at the events in Dubai. They're, they're month-long, um, you know, get events on uh, fintech and crypto. And, um, you know, glad to have you on the show. Want you tell us, I guess the best thing to do is to talk about, uh, you know, your, your company and uh, how you operate exclusively on, on the metaverse. That's, that's a nice way to start. Yep, certainly. Thank you for having me, Ajay. And it was very nice to meet in Dubai indeed. Uh, so my, my day job, my main company is called Larvol. And what we do is that we sell data and software solutions to the healthcare industries. So think about us as a little bit of a mini Bloomberg specializing in pharma and in, uh, in healthcare. Uh, we are 150 people. We've been operating since 2004. And way before the, the pandemic, we were actually uh, virtual already. So we never had a headquarter. Uh, I like to tell people that my, my VP of operation and I worked together for, for 12 years. And I, I never met her uh, in, in person. And that's a way for, uh, we actually don't want to meet. We are afraid it will break the good chemistry and great working relationship uh, we have. So uh, later on, we, uh, uh, we actually move now to the next level, which is that we, uh, we have actually a, a, a metaverse angle, which is we're the first company to operate exclusively uh, in the metaverse. Uh, for one year, I, uh, I only worked uh, in, in the metaverse. No email, uh, no meeting in person, no phone call. All of my meetings with my team has been uh, virtual in, in 3D, in a virtual office. All, all, all interactions are in the metaverse. All exchanges are avatar to avatar. Um, obviously, there are going to be people on the fence that are not sold. Did you have to coax or cajole or bring them around, or were you fortunate in that you were around like-minded people that were open to technology and the possibilities? So a little bit of all of the above. Um, the the headset I've got one in next to me. Here I've got the new uh, the new Pro, for example, is a little bit better than the uh, Quest uh, Two. Uh, however, it's still quite of clunky, and it's a little bit heavy. It's also buggy. The, 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 the software that comes with it uh, uh, crashes a good amount. So the, despite the 10 billion spent a year by Zuckerberg, 
the metaverse is still not there. So we had a time where people are making fun of it, which is deserved. Uh, so yes, um, with a small company, I had to uh, twist a little bit people's arms to have them come in the metaverse. Uh, but uh, we also had a great time. We had a lot of uh, parties. Uh, we have all of our executive meetings are in the metaverse, a lot of our, uh, of our one-on-one as well. I think that as as I spent one year in the metaverse, I realized two things, Ajay. Number one, uh, Zuckerberg is right, as much as I hate to admit it, we're going to live in the metaverse at some point, really in a drastic way, in a way that would change our society. But it's going to take a long, long time. And uh, the big companies in particular are going to have a tough time adjusting because it's such a different way of building relationships with, between uh, between people. So we've been a bit of a, um, a guinea pig in, uh, in, in running that business experiment, if you will. Well, I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the changes you, you've seen um, over the course of your career. Uh, so, something we've, we discussed, uh, albeit in passing in Dubai, is because we are in Hong Kong financial hub, People want to know what is this? What does this mean for the financial sector? What what does this mean to, you know, the payment systems and, and the nature of exchanges and how transactions will be done? What 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 does it mean to legacy financial institutions? Get on board or risk going extinct or what? What I mean, do they will they have to have a metaverse presence? You you see a lot of brand now, of course building a metaverse, building a metaverse presence, uh, creating an event next to Snoop Dogg's in Decentraland or in, uh, in, in the Sandbox or in VR chat. Um, and even banks are, are, are dabbling with it, and they should. I, I think to a large degree, I'm sorry to admit that, but to a large degree, nothing is going to happen <laughs> near term. And what I mean by that, and, and uh, the Sandbox got a lot of slack for it, uh, for example, they have about 40 people, daily active users, on the Sandbox right now. Now, right. Uh, there was a little bit of controversy while in Dubai about what that means, right? Um, uh, by daily active users, I mean engaged through on-chain interaction as opposed to just logging in on uh, Sandbox. But still, these numbers, of course, uh, for a company of one point something billion dollars, a sandbox, I mean, a razor eyebrow. And some people, including me, as much as a metaverse believer as I am, are going to admit the fact that today in the metaverse, you don't have anybody, statistically speaking. There are very few people really in the metaverse today. So you could say the metaverse is not a place yet where people spend time. We probably as a company, Actually, I know we're the company that is spending the most time in the metaverse. I spend about five hours a day on average uh, in the metaverse. Uh, no other companies are doing that for all kinds of reasons. So we're still very early. And I know the metaverse went through a cycle of uh, essentially being hyped when uh, um, Facebook changed its name to now being in a phase where it's made fun of. And then it's going to start again. And at some point, whether it's in one year or three or four, I don't know, though, might be more three or four, uh, at some point it's going to come back. And at that point, people are going to be, instead of making fun of it, they're going to be, I predict, a little bit upset, scared, 
some people maybe violently because they will realize how much our life is going to change. And the reason they're going to change is that with mobile technology, with the internet, you're still outside of the machine. You're, you're, you, can, you can extricate yourself. But with virtual reality and with the metaverse, all of your senses are taken. You are inside. You're inside the simulation that Elon Musk is talking about. And that, that step for humanity, not to get dramatic, it reminds me of, remember the movie 2001 Space Odyssey? Yeah. The, very right, the humanoid touching the monolith, the monolite. Yeah. So I like sci-fi. I like to be a little bit dramatic. I do think that the metaverse is us moving inside the machine, moving inside the simulation, and it might take five years or 10 years or 30 years. But once we're inside the machine, the digital environment we live in is going to be so much part of our life that is going to be really defining us in many, many ways. And that vision is going to scare a lot of people and should, because it's a dramatic shift, in my view, in humanity. So I like to be dramatic, like I'm writing a sci-fi movie, but I do feel it's a sci-fi movie. I think we're in the early chapter of it. And I think that ultimately it's a positive movie despite all the challenges because empathy and trust and sense of connectivity come from sharing a space. Zoom is not a shared space. Therefore, Zoom is not creating shared memories. But the metaverse, broadly defined as that immersive digital environment where you and I are going to be closer and closer with that meeting in person. That's a shared space where the digital objects around us, the digital environment is going to become very important to us. And that's where that's really a point of no return in our evolution uh, as in, increasingly a digital species. So it is a little scary and it should be as a matter of fact. I mean, it's weird because I was talking to one guy and he was like, yeah, I, yeah, I just saw the other guy last night. When was the last time you met him? Three weeks ago. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's that type of, you know, thing that, that you're in regular contact, even if you haven't met the person. And, and that for some who are used to the technology of an older age, that disconnect between time and space is, uh, is, is hard to grasp. On the point of connectivity, there is a concern that it may lead to people disconnecting from the real world and living the bulk of their lives in the metaverse and that, that, that that's not healthy. In terms of the, the negativity attached to the metaverse, I think a lot of that was the backlash against Zuckerberg and Facebook and their actions in, in recent years. And so guilt by association meta or the metaverse was, 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 also, was also tainted. Uh, but but in, in terms of, you know, it's, it's a unique journey for you as an enterprise and, and as an individual because you're not selling the metaverse to anyone, but you're primarily active on the metaverse. So that is your address. That's right. My, my company is not selling the metaverse. We have a few customers who are asking us to help them with the metaverse, but this is not our primary job. Our job is to develop software in healthcare. 
the metaverse is just where we meet, where we talk, where we have fun, where we connect to each other, where we create empathy, trust, um, sense of camaraderie, sense of being in the same company, culture. So we're not a metaverse company. We're not selling the metaverse, although I'm personally, of course, selling the metaverse concept. Uh, but but we, we're using it day to day more than probably any other companies. And, um, and just to give you a little example that I like to, to use, one of the, the, the people I hired who became a co-founder of the new company we talk about, which is Rexo or XXO, uh, his, um, his, his grandma is quite ill but wanted to go to Mecca uh, and um, too ill to do it. But she could put the headset on and go to visit Mecca. Think about uh, the feeling that it creates. My own father-in-law uh, has Parkinson's disease and his, uh, his dream while retiring was to uh, visit Nepal. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, Parkinson prevented him to travel upon retirement. Uh, last time I visited in LA, I put the headset on his face and we went to Nepal and Tibet. Think about the feeling of, of that. Uh, another example, um, the same colleague, the same colleague I was mentioned. Was he viewing it in real time? Well, it, no, it was a movie, but it navigated. It, 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 I'm sure there's also a way, I assume, uh, but, but still he, he visited an environment that was a real Nepal recreated partially in, in, in 3D and he navigated it interactively with a headset on his face. Um, so that's another one. One more example. One of my colleagues said when I when I recruited him, he said, "I want to immigrate to the U.S. based in Pakistan. That's what I want to do." It's not easy to immigrate no. to the U.S. It's not easy. Post 9/11 world, it's a lot tougher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other day he said, "Well, you know what, Bruno? I realize I already immigrated out of Pakistan because he's working in our office in the metaverse." In the morning, he put the headset, and he immigrates outside of his country, in the metaverse. So the sense of where you are. Well, I'm in the metaverse, right? So the sense of where you are, the environment, the space, the office, the island. Sometimes we like to meet next to an island. All of that is now redefined as our environment, and the technology is getting better and better. One more example: uh, the new probe as a camera facing you. So not only it renders your hands perfectly, you can have fine movement of your hand without glove, no need for glove or controllers. I mean, yes, you, you, you have the controllers here, but you don't need them. But also, your face is re-rendered. If I wink, my avatar winks. If I roll my eyes, and I tried, my avatar roll. If I yawn, I've got to be careful because I thought my yawning uh, in the old days wasn't visible. Now if I yawn in the middle of a presentation, Everybody sees it. So we're becoming a deep faked avatar. And within a few years, our avatars will be uh, augmented us. So it will be, it not only will choose our, our look, so I can look younger, better, more hair, uh, you know, anything I want. Um, and, but also the, the way my, my face moves uh, no wrinkles, um, so it's going to be quite amazing. Actually, it's it's like 
it's like a little bit on Instagram, um, a filter, but but square or quadruple. I mean, amazing. So uh, I think it's unescapable. And but you're right, there is a risk. Uh, it's it's actually unavoidable that the metaverse competes with other interaction in our life. I don't have time to meet you at a coffee over there at Cafe de la Presse in San Francisco if I'm meeting with someone else in the metaverse. Even the family, right? My family sometimes say, oh, Bruno, hey, come to dinner. Oh, I'm in the metaverse. So uh, the, 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 all of the relationship in our life are competing with each other. All of a sudden, with the metaverse, our attention that was already taken by TikTok, by Instagram, by Snapchat, blah, 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 blah. Now there is a metaverse on top of that that competes with all of the other real-world proximity in our lives. It's going to be fascinating and scary at the same time. But at the end of the day, how can you even get into a war when you're buddy-buddy with people all over the world? And social media already does that, by the way. It, but has, it has the potential to bring the world together, I agree. Yeah. You know, one, one more advantageous, uh, and that's my manifesto in favor of the metaverse. <laughs> I probably annoy a lot of people when I go to it. But here's the other thing. Um, in business, we fly to New York for a three-hour meeting all the time. Think about how ridiculous this is from an um, energetic standpoint. Right? Now... Zoom is not like meeting in person. We don't create the same report in Zoom as we do when we met in that uh, terrace in Dubai, uh, having fun for a couple of hours, eating a very good burger. And yeah. uh, So Zoom doesn't do that. But the metaverse is starting to do it. So to sign a contract with you, to really get a sense of who you are, to connect with you, to build that trust, increasingly, a meeting in virtual reality is going to compete with flying to Hong Kong and visiting with you. And um, so some people are saying, rich people are going to travel, less rich people are going to metaverse meet. That is the expectation, the class divide. Um, certainly the, when I was talking about people getting detached from real life, I'm sure you've heard this concept in China of lying flat, let it rot young people are disillusioned with the system from the standpoint of jobs, uh, upward progression in society, seeing it, you know, their earnings rise, their, you know, their ability to move up the socioeconomic ladder, buy their own house. They're just choosing to, I mean, it was the Timothy Leary saying in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, tune, you know, plug in, tune out, drop out, something, something like that. Uh, and that's essentially what they're doing. And so the concern is with the advent of the metaverse, more people will live their ideal reality in the metaverse and stop focusing on human relationships, worldly achievement in the real world. And uh, that, 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 that is the concern, that it became it becomes a refuge, a, um, a form, simply put, a form of escapism. It has many good applications. I mean, and... and um, that scares me. That scares me a lot. A friend of mine said, uh, with universal basic income, and we don't, we're not here to talk politics, uh, or with other trends, 
in society, a lot of people uh, might not need to work or might not work or might choose not to work, by the way. And what are they going to do? And according to him, uh, trigger warning a little bit. According to him, they're going to do two things. Drugs and metaverse games. They could be doing business in the metaverse too, though. Well, that's right. Now, that's more what I believe is a positive aspect yeah. of it. If it's doing drugs and, and just playing in the metaverse, uh, that's not going to be a very good future for them and is going to have a lot of societal implication. Um, what, what I'm hoping is that the metaverse allows a, a lot of new businesses, new activities, new collaborations between people all over the world. The, the landscape is still taking form. As you said, not that many people inhabit it round the clock. One thing that um, has yet to be solidified is, I mean, we were talking about the first uh, assault on a woman uh, in the metaverse earlier. And, uh, you know, what laws apply to the metaverse? What, I mean, years ago when I studied cybercrime, our instructor said to us, don't look at the cyber realm as a unique realm. You're applying traditional definitions of crimes to crimes in the cyberverse. And it'll be up to you to decide how those crimes apply to activities in the cyberspace. So should we, uh, um, but, but even, even still, people feel the broad contours of the law and regulations for governing cyberspace are not not that clear who, whose laws apply. Um, in the case, I mean, in, in very few companies, and broadly speaking, technology, apply uh, operate without any kind of uh, regulatory or, or legal oversight. So, legal. In the case of your own company, shows that regulation and legal strategy is important, and that you decided to incorporate not in the U.S., not in Hong Kong, not in Dubai or Switzerland, but the BVI. I mean that you feel gave you a strategic advantage. And that's a bit the connection to um, my new business, a sister company to Larvel, which is Rexo, the diamond of the metaverse. But just before we, we talk about that, I want to go back to your point about behaviors and yes. um, etiquette in the metaverse. Um, when I open uh, my um, meta um, uh, workroom, which is one of the places I'm doing most of my metaverse work, uh, so thank you, Zuckerberg. Uh, when I open it now, Zuckerberg tells me, be careful, behave, right? Keep in mind, Bruno, that uh, an avatar is just a person with a headset on. Take into account uh, um, s uh, personal space, for example, and behaviors, right? And, um, and sometimes it's a little annoying and patronizing, but behind it, there is something very true, which is that... Um, uh, an avatar is a person. It's not a cartoon character. And, uh, and when we meet an avatar, we have to have the same respect uh, as if we were meeting in person. And there's something, uh, I'm thinking about some of these TikTok, when you've, you see dogs sort of uh, barking at each other when there's a barrier between us. So it's fascinating. They bark like crazy. You remove the barrier, they're too nice, they stop barking. Why? Because they know that then they have to fight. But the fact that there's that barrier allows it to be nasty to each other. 
It's actually a fascinating so video. All of a sudden it becomes real. All of a sudden it becomes yeah. real. Yeah. Because, because it, so in other words, when there's no consequence, because there's no way to reach each other, we become a little nasty, right? Uh, same thing in social media, by the way. And the risk in the metaverse is that because people cannot have individual physical consequence to their misbehavior, maybe nobody knows who they are, or nobody can punch you in the face in the metaverse, that they will be nastier in the way they behave to each other. And now, I, I haven't seen that. But as we are talking, I'm wondering if that's not a possibility, like what we see in social media. People in social media are sometimes so violently fighting on Twitter, for example, in a way that they would not in real life. Because in real life, there is a certain respect or maybe expected consequences that comes from being in a shared space. We know that someone could punch you in the face, so you don't, you don't say, you don't say certain things. Oh, certainly to, cer to certain people, to certain people that, you know, if a MMA fighter gets knocked out, I mean that's that's a traumatic experience. You may not like the guy, but the, that's a traumatic experience. And then you know, for people online, oh, he went out like a punk. I mean, you you would never dare say that to his face, but. Online, it's like I'm I'm absolved of uh, any uh, human decency, any any responsibility. I can I can let my raw, bestial, carnal nature run wild. Now I haven't seen that yet, as I said, but but I do. There's a potential of that uh, nastiness of human nature to emerge once there is no consequence, because there's that barrier between us. We cannot really. Nobody can hurt me. I can do whatever I want. Nobody can even know who I am behind my avatar, and that could lead to a lot of nastiness. So I hope that's not going to happen. What does it say about most people then? That, that, that we have, it suggests to me that then most societies have a lot of closeted low to moderate level sociopaths. That when there's no consequences, they, they will run wild, but that on the street, they behave themselves for the most part. Don't well, and, and that's back to a point you made earlier, which is, Will Zuckerberg in particular, maybe Apple, maybe Samsung, will have to see, uh, own the metaverse? Is it a world garden like maybe an Apple uh, app store, meaning that you can be kicked out like you can be kicked out too from, from Twitter or from Facebook, right? You misbehave, you could get restricted, suspended, or absolutely banned, right? And so it has plus and minuses. Plus, People are going to behave more. There are consequences. Zuckerberg can ban you from not a metaverse, but maybe the metaverse. If Zuckerberg's metaverse becomes the dominant one, like uh, Twitter is a dominant public space for discourse, right? So think about it. You could be banned from uh, the metaverse. And the metaverse is a place where things happen. Think about the power of whoever controls the metaverse. This is why I predict that Zuckerberg is going to be successful, is going to own the metaverse or the main metaverse, and is going to be the world's first trillionaire. That's my prediction. And I'm not saying that and saying that's good or that's bad, but that's my, that's my prediction. On, 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 on that point then, if, if he owns the main metaverse where most people operate, most people transact, but you, you do envision multiple lands, right? Multiple metaverses that different people will operate and 
then I guess it's like visiting, in a sense, visiting different countries. Oh, I'm going to hang out here this weekend, uh, you know, go, go shuttle, shuttle back and forth. Certainly the expectation is that most commerce in the metaverse will probably take place on Zuckerberg's metaverse. That, that he's, because, because of the size and scale and the first mover advantage, because of, because of Facebook's inherent strengths, that he's poised to capitalize on that. And naturally, the banks are going to flood to, flock to his metaverse. And also because Zuckerberg is young and cannot be fired, and cares more about changing the, the world and becoming, you know, the new Steve Jobs than he cares about making a few more billion dollars. So he's very, I mean, if you're Tim Cook or if you're um, in other company, you can be fired, right? If, if your stock price goes down 70% as it just did for Meta, you would probably get fired. But Zuckerberg cannot because he's got shares that are uh, protecting him against big fights. He's got multi-vote shares right to his name so um so this is why i predict that he's going to win now it's not going to be one metaverse i don't think so i think it's going to be like social media right you have you have facebook you have you know instagram you've got it's going to be a number of places but it's not going to be infinite and there's going to be some of these metaverse are going to be become dominant in certain areas like you know, it's not that hard, it's not that easy at all to replicate Twitter, for example. We see that now. If someone wants to say, okay, I quit Twitter, where are they going to go to find the same type of um, communication environment? I mean, Mastodon, Parley, I mean, there's really no, it's very hard. And so I predict it's going to be the same, but it also means that the metaverse is not going to be like the internet, meaning the internet itself is infinite okay but not social media you have only so many social media places where you have to be if you want to be present in the conversation it i think it's going to be the same with the metaverse they're not going to be an infinite number of metaverse if you get bad if you get banned from zuckerberg's metaverse it's a big deal it's a big, big deal. So Zuckerberg is going to be even more the president, the unelected president of 3 billion people, maybe at some point 5 billion people. And that's an incredible situation that humanity has never seen to have private, a private company and a private individual being so incredibly powerful. And that's scary and amazing at the same time. It is, again, it, it's, it's the first mover advantage. It, it, it's not to say someone couldn't technologically create, recreate what Twitter has, but again, they're following their view. The perception is they are the global town square. That, that's, that's why they've cemented that place in the psyche of, of, of most people. Uh, and to your point about the walled garden, well, that assumes rules. That assumes a watchdog, a policeman. There you run into claims of possibly selective enforcement. Donald Trump or Kanye West are allowed back onto Twitter. Yet uh, Johnny Depp's lawyer from the UK case is still not allowed back on Twitter. Again, so selective enforcement. I mean, does, does Mr. Musk really have the strength of convictions to sta stand by fully behind what he says?
The other interesting question is whether uh, they're going to be state-sanctioned. That's an interesting question, right? Will they be state-owned, state-controlled, state-operated, state-sanctioned metaverse? Well, if you want to go to the metaverse, you have to go to the official metaverse of a given country. I think that in mainland China and possibly Russia and, and uh, certainly the Arab and Islamic world, you will see the uh, the only metaverse you will be le quote unquote legally be allowed to access will, will be the state sanctioned ones. The the they will put their imprimatur. I mean, obviously we look. We, the people in mainland China are not stupid. They they discovered the use of VPNs long ago. I mean, I you know I, I won't belabor that point. But but in terms of they don't let Facebook into China. They've created their own version of it, but again, that has the imprimatur, that has the approval of the state. And one would also think the state has backdoors into that system. There's a parallel discussion about crypto, of course, and there might be a segue to uh, the crypto side of things, which is a yeah. crypto owned and controlled by the government. It's a little bit of a, uh, a, a parallel between uh, control of the metaverse and control of of crypto and of course the link between the two uh, via nft is a bit what people are calling um, web3 uh, these days well you know when people talk about governments and crypt governments issue e-currencies by its definition it can't be crypto if it's coming from a government right because it's official currency it's fiat currency it it it, it you know cri crypto is what what the private sector does but but yeah i mean in terms of what we were talking about before, about NFTs creating the equivalent of Bitcoin in a non-fungible world. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? The, the way I look at the crypto world, and I, I started in crypto in 2013. Uh, I started uh, a couple of crypto projects earlier, and uh, I, uh, I, have, uh, I have some views that are minority views about crypto. Uh, I'm looking at crypto as four waves. The first wave being Bitcoin, the store value. The job of these coins is to be. They don't do anything. They, they, they are a store of value. Uh, they barely are useful for medium of exchange, by the way. Nobody buys anything with Bitcoin in any serious way. It's too volatile. It's too valuable in some ways to buy coffee with Bitcoin. So store of value is the first wave. Then come the Ethereum and the Ethereum killer, the DApp platform that are doing something. In my view, they mostly pretend to do something because um, nearly nothing should be done off chain. It's so inefficient that um, being on chain is worth doing if you're money, essentially, if you're a store of value. But nearly everything else, in my opinion, and again, I'm a minority on that point, nearly nothing should be done off chain except being value being a currency or being a store value. So the second wave is the, 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 the decentralized app, right? The, 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 the Ethereum and Ethereum killer. The third, unfortunately, is DeFi. So, uh, of course, it has been a tough ride recently. And the whole idea with DeFi is uh, will give you a, a, a yield of 20%. And if you believe it, then you don't know where the yield is coming from, as I say, the yield is coming from you. Uh, hidden risk uh, in a stable coin that is not that stable as we saw with uh, Luna and in a different way with Celsius. So that's the third wave. 
The fourth wave is NFTs. Of course, it started way back when with CryptoKitties. I still have one CryptoKitty. And then re reemerged in 2021 with a vengeance uh, with the apes and the punk and, and, and so on and so forth. And of course, the souffle went down quite drastically. Uh, the, the fifth wave, and now I'm going to be doing a bit of an infomercial for a second. The fifth wave is, uh, is us. Let me explain. Um, so infomercial, right? Um, uh, the problem with NFTs, uh, the problem to create something as consequential as Bitcoin in the non-fungible world is that NFTs are small community defined by usually 10,000 unique collectibles. You cannot, be, you cannot have universal relevance with a snobbish group of 10,000 people. I'm French. I know snob. I know how powerful it is. But snob doesn't get you universality. Uh, you cannot cross the chasm from snob to universal. It's, I, mean, I know bored apes try to do that with the, the coin now. It's very difficult. So it's not universal. The second problem with NFTs is that it's cool. It's fashionable. It's hip. Anything cool becomes uncool. Anything fashionable becomes unfashionable. Therefore, it's defined temporarily as near-term flex. It's impossible for something cool to be timeless, like Bitcoin. So, to me, the most interesting thing to do today in crypto is what Rexo does. This is why I decided to back an amazing team and invest uh, uh, money into it. Uh, what I think is exciting is to try to create the asset class, non-fungible asset class, that will be as consequential as Bitcoin, meaning universal and timeless. And it's nearly impossible to do. That's why it's so interesting, nearly impossible to do. And we Very think important. that they think, and I think with them, the founding team, that we found the way. And the way is to look at what's happening in the real world. There is one object in the real world that found a way, a collection of objects. A collection is objects that are all the same, all different. What? Picasso, they're all the same, they're all different. Um, uh, tables, I guess, are all the same, all different in some ways. But there's one object that found a way to be universal. There could be millions of people who own it. It's still valuable. Picassos, if you have a million people who own a Picasso, it doesn't give you any social or emotional value, by the way. So there's one object that is universal and has a claim to timelessness, and it's the diamond. The diamond in the real world found a way to be universal and eternal. A diamond lasts forever, right? How to make three months of salary worth, uh, last forever. And so what we, what we decided to do is to use a social contract of a diamond to create what my colleague called, I think that's a wonderful term, a cryptangible, something crypto that replicates a tangible asset class, the diamond. So what we did is that we created a a digital twin, not of one particular diamond one-on-one. -on -one. They're not tethered diamond. They're not, um, they're not pegged diamond. But it's a digital twin of the entire supply of diamond. One billion diamond, which is the approximation of the number of cut diamond in the world. One billion diamond. And to say there will never be 
more than a billion diamond uh, in the definition of a diamond so in other words we're not Tiffany we're not selling a jewel we more De Beers, or more precisely, we have the definition of the diamond in the digital world. If, AJ, you start your own diamond, we want people to say, AJ's diamond is not the real diamond. It's just a fancy, shiny, polygonal object in the digital world. But Bruno and Daniel and Shahir and Gislens Diamond, the founding team, is real because it's beautiful, but beauty is cheap in the digital world, it's very cheap. It's not that it's beautiful, it's got to be very beautiful, but it's scarce and it's got guaranteed scarcity because the only job of Rexo is the same as the only job of De Beers in the real world, which is to guarantee, support the scarcity of the diamond. That, that comes down to who, who is setting the value. I mean, are, are markets pricing these or... I mean, because someone can look at this and say, well, there's a degree of opaqueness in terms of the pricing yes. and valuation. That, 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 that's going to need to be addressed, right, before you can uh, build more confidence in people. So pricing is so interesting, obviously. Uh, price discovery is so interesting for non-fungible tokens because right. each asset has to be priced separately. How do you do that? Actually, uh, it's done on purpose also because, obviously, it's worth doing a digital diamond, a Rexo, if you're absolutely certain not to be considered a security. And one of the, now of course we're, we're looking at your regulatory and, and, and legal uh, background here, but especially in Europe, one of the element of not being a security is not to be mass tradable. If you're mass tradable, you have a higher likelihood of being a security. But if yeah. each object in a collection of 1 billion is uniquely priced based on cabot, cut, quality, color, etc., clarity, uh, it is by design very difficult to mass trade it. So in other words, it is, it is much removed from being a security. But price discovery become a very interesting topic, super interesting. For example, the initial pricing of the Rexo diamond is determined at a 20,000x difference from the equivalent stone in the real world. So in other words, a, a, a one carat diamond uh, is going to be, let's say it's about ten, uh, perfect one, one carat diamond. Let's say it's $10,000 all right, in the real world. Well, in our world, it's going to be 20,000 times less. It's going to be, let's say, $5. But on the other hand, the Queen's Diamond, the Cullinan one, right, 530.2 uh, carat. And uh, th these are the biggest diamond. There's really no diamond bigger than 600 carat, cut diamond, I mean, right? So that diamond in the real world is priceless. Let's say a billion dollars, right? So in, the, in our world, it's going to be between half a million to a million dollars, right? about 20,000. Well, it approximately it depends, but we, we essentially are building a correspondence between the real world pricing and our somewhat arbitrary pricing of our, of our assets, of our um, digital diamonds. Only I would imagine there's more fluctuation in your values though, right? Well, the market ultimately decides. The same way Board Ape decide how much to, at what price to mint 
their board apes. The market decides the secondary value. Same here. And what's interesting is that although we mimicked all of the mix of our diamond supply with high respect to the mix of real diamonds, I actually expect that people's behavior value would be very different. For example, uh, if you take a blue diamond, all right, it's actually always valued much less than a colorless diamond. Even if it's much more rare, that's not the way digital assets behave. No, in, in digital asset, blue diamond, I expect, are going to be valued more than colorless for two reasons. First, they're fun. They're more fun than a colorless diamond. And two, they're, they're rare. They're more rare than a colorless diamond. So I actually expect the the uh, the, the I expect the, the fancy diamond, the, the colored diamond, to actually be more valuable. So we don't know how the market ultimately is going to be pricing. That's going to be fascinating emergent behavior uh, about uh, about our diamonds. Isn't that more a matter of the algorithm though? That you could write the algorithm to, because I mean, but but clearly, we're what we're seeing is the crypto mar diamond market then veering off, deviating from from the natural market, the actual real world market. So that that that's intriguing. I mean, to, to hear you talk about scarcity and, 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 and value, I mean, it makes me think back to all those years ago when uh, I took uh, two semesters of history of economic thought, and we were confronted with the age-old water diamond paradox. And it was answered in terms of water, ha why is water so, which is so essential to life, valued less than diamonds? And that water has more total utility, diamonds have more marginal utility. Yes. That, that, you know, each increment of water is priced lowly. Every individual diamond is priced highly. Uh, you know, it would, I don't know. I mean, if people necessarily find that satisfactory. I mean, if you were in a desert, the market has changed. The values will necessarily be different. People have ultimately said, look, ultimately it's what whatever's certainly the U.S. perspective is, it markets decide. It's whatever someone's willing to pay for it. That is the market value. But I think, as we've also seen, once you get a, in the case of a, someone who's, star, who's thirsty in a desert, or say at an auction, if market, if economists, what economists say, market value is what a reasonable person would pay, then in the case of a desert, a person who's uh, thirsty in a desert or, or in an auction, those scenarios would be what an unreasonable person would pay. Because in one instance, you're talking about survival and the other emotions get involved. So, yeah, pr prices don't always get settled upon through ra rational means, I, 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 would, I would say. The example of water is so, is so meaningful because obviously uh, when you sell um, a glass of water in the desert, you sell life. Uh, survival and someone had a very nice term that what is money it's actually survival in a can it's a way to encapsulate the possibility of survival in a very compact um, space whether it's a coin or a ledger wallet right but it's survival money is the possibility of survival for example 
if I have a million dollars, maybe I can buy a glass of water in the desert where there's no water. I have to pay a million dollars. And you would, because where the li line between life and death is that thin, you would, you would if you could. Your last dollar on a glass of water to survive, obviously. Um, but there's something else interesting about diamond, is that diamond, what is the job of a diamond? The job of diamond is it's humanity. It's a way to communicate something. It's a way to uh, bond with, it's an emotional bond to my wife. It's a reminder of my grandmother, maybe. It's a way to flex and show how cool or successful I am with a diamond on my ear. So the reason why diamonds are so valuable beyond the fact that they are very efficient at storing value, you can store in your pocket anything from um, $100 in diamond or a billion in dollars. I can put the Cullinan one in my pocket. I can have a billion dollars in my pocket. It's a very efficient way of storing value. Right? Not in spending it because it's not easy to spend a portion of a diamond. But the interesting thing about diamond is that a big part of their value is a social value. Social value. You want to communicate something about who you are. From that perspective, by the way, they're not that far from art or um, fashion or bored apes, with one exception. The type of beauty they have is incredibly boring. Incredibly boring. It's always the same. Every diamond is the same. They're all different, yes, but they're all the same also. They, now, I say boring to be funny, but it's, it's, what I mean by boring is a classic beauty that is designed not to get in fashion because it's so constrained, it's so coded. A diamond's cat doesn't really get out of fashion. A little bit, but not really, really, right? So it's designed to be, not to be cool, not to be fashionable, but to have a beauty and a way to communicate who you are or sometimes who you want to be or, we, or, or to attract people or attract attention uh, in a way that keeps value long, 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 long term, forever, arguably, as the advertisement says. So it's, a, a diamond is about love and a diamond is about people. That's what makes it different from water. I mean, com coming to something you, you said earlier, I mean, there's the, because it can be passed down generation to generation, there's the intergenerational wealth aspect of it. This has to be one of the most successful advertising campaigns, again, that the De Beers Corporation launched in terms of altering the psyche of young men and women, more so women who, and then that triggered a response in men who realized that if they were going to court a young woman in the modern world, there were certain minimum expectations of them. I think in the US last time I was there, it was what, one and a half, two carats, thereabouts. Uh, but even that has gotten pricier. But it's also the artificial scarcity. And uh, I mean, even as at the time I was in college in the 90s, it was, a, it was a known secret that what was keeping the De Beers Corporation, you know, afloat was not so much the not so much the abeyance of U.S. Justice Department lawsuits, which people had wanted to file for a long time and come after them for antitrust violations, but 
the fact that the Russians had so many diamonds in reserve, that the agreement that De Beers Corporation reached with the Russians in the late 80s, early 90s, was the only thing keeping that market afloat. Because had they drowned the market, and there's, you know, as you know, Russia has every element of the periodic table. Had they drowned the market in their, with their diamonds, I mean, even today, diamonds, you can buy diamonds on the street. You know, you can buy them on the streets of Antwerp, you know, outside of the legal official system. You, you can buy them in, in India. But, um, but yeah, that, that scarcity that's been enforced. You know, I, I really think that for, for the average person, yeah, it is, it is, it is scarce. Because the De, Beers, the De Beers marketing has done ju such a Jedi mind trick on most people that it, it, they got, it, it's left an indelible mark, an indelible imprint on people's minds. The De Beers invention, essentially, of the diamond uh, with uh, make sure that uh, allow three months of salary to uh, last forever is probably one of the most successful slogan in the history of business. So when in Dubai, we had a booth and we and uh, people came to visit the booth and on the booth, we, uh, we presented our digital diamond, but we, we also had these. I don't know how clear with the camera. Oh, I here remember, I remember these, right? So we gave away 100 real diamonds at the booth. So at the center of that little box, there's a real diamond. Now it's a small diamond. It's actually 0.01 carat. Uh, the digital diamond that we gave away, we also gave a digital diamond of 10 carat, which was worth more than this one. And um, I was playing a game, which is to ask people, how much do you think that small diamond is worth? And um, I was so amazed at the response. People would say $100. Some, someone said $250. Um, the real answer is $12. We pay $12 for each of these real diamonds. Uh, and when you think about it, $12 is nothing because the whole $12 had to go into creating the facets of that diamond. You need someone to hold the diamond and to create, I don't know how many facets, not the 50 facets, but at least there is 10 facets in it that, that has to call most of that $12 is a cutting. What it means is that small diamonds are worth nothing. In other words, the value of the diamond is a scarcity of a diamond which only comes with size. Small right. diamonds are worthless or near worthless. I mean, $12 is something, but uh, a, a one, again, a one carat diamond is probably five to $10,000. And then the, the bigger diamond, it's an extremely exponential curve. Yeah. And this is how the diamond found a way to be universal. Because what matters is not that you have a diamond and that I have a diamond. It's that my diamond is bigger than yours. Yeah. Or more beautiful or clearer and so on. That's ancient. That's primal. And, and in terms of the exponential curve you speak of, we see that in Hong Kong real estate. Smaller flats, smaller price per square foot, lower price per square foot. Bigger flats not just cost more yes. in totality, but the price per square foot is higher.
with larger flats. I can't explain it. Yes, but, same idea. But, yeah, yeah. Now th there is one other aspect uh, for for me in um, in in what we're doing and in uh, what could be done that is interesting in the area of um, non fungibility and digital diamond. What uh, we wanted to do is to make sure that people feel good when they buy an NFT. Uh, young people, um, in particular. Uh, they, they don't just care about money, of course, which is very good. I admire them. They care about the planet. They care about many very positive things beyond money. Well, they have the luxury at that age. Yes, that's true. Uh, but still, I, I admire their, their, their outlook. And for example, um, blood diamond, people shouldn't use them. They, I think they're going to use them less and less. Right. Um, Lab diamond first is not rare because you can create as many as you want. Also, they take a good amount of energy to create. So we wanted our diamond to be carbon negative. If you think about it, it's beautiful. A diamond is intended to be is intended to be carbon negative because it it captured a bunch of carbon, compressed it. Right, a, a diamond is a piece of coal that did well under pressure, as we say. Right. So by nature. And it's a, a lawyer friend of mine, Neil Perret, who came with that Im image. By nature, a diamond is supposed to be a tool of carbon negativity. It's supposed to be a way to capture carbon from the environment and make it into a beautiful object that is good and beautiful. And so our diamonds are also carbon negative. So when you buy a diamond, you're actually making a carbon negativity act. And on top of that, we, li we like to call them health uh, positive because 20% of our tower of diamond. So again, imagine the Burj Khalifa. We were in Dubai again. Imagine the Burj Khalifa of diamond at the top, 10 big ones. That's it. Never be more than 10, 600 carat diamond. That's it. At the bottom, a ton, uh, millions and millions of super small ones. It's a big tower of diamond. 20% of that supply of diamond goes to medical research. 20%. So, when we become the Bitcoin of di uh, the Bitcoin equivalent, so the digital diamond, the Bitcoin of uh, non-fungibility, uh, our, our impact on medical research, our medical research foundation, which is called uh, Rexomed, is going to be bigger than the Gate Foundation. And now, yeah. now the, 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 the the impact, obviously, that and my, as you know, my background is in healthcare, medical research. That's my my field, and I love the idea that Rexos Diamond can have an impact in medical research and and will. I'm super excited about that. Uh, not only that, it's the most important object I can think about, right? The universal and eternal object of the digital world where we're going to live, but also that it will be anchored in being carbon negative and health positive. So that's my, that's my pitch to you and to uh, your, your audience. I like the fact you brought up your background because you, you're, you've done many things. You've started multiple companies, uh, but you're not a techie, but you work in the tech space. And that's increasingly what I'm finding, that a lot of people in FinTech and crypto are not techies. There is one, uh, 
were, we were talking about cloud computing one day, and this fellow said, what's that you say, cloud computing? Yeah, I, I want to talk about the clownery and buffoonery and effrontery and, and the posers and, and the preening and, and pretension that exists in technology circles, especially when a lot of people... There's one organization locally in this space that, that shall remain nameless. But I went to one of their meetings. I was like, a bigger gathering of pretenders, posers, and, and pretentious types, three P words that I'm not uh, particularly fond of, uh, I, have, I have yet to see. He was right. That the, but a lot of people in tech in this space are not techies. A lot of them are just repackaging other people's knowledge for their own ends. A lot of people, I know lawyers, I know regulators, I know bankers, that have gone to the trouble of learning about the subject matter. And they are really power users. There are people that are sincere and there are people that are just posing. Uh, but in your field, again, a, lo a lot of people are not techies. And I'm just curious, how, how is that? And, and in terms of our students here at HKU, the ones that are contemplating maybe a career, even if they're not from a sci STEM background, science, technology, engineering, uh, you know, mathematics, uh, if they're not coming at it from that background, but they have a background in, say, liberal arts, like myself, before I went to law school, uh, if they have a background in the humanities, social sciences, business, or law, or accounting, what, what, what would you tell them? Uh, uh, Ajay, this is such a wonderful question. And uh, What's the right major, or is there a right major? I, I, uh, my, my major, uh, I studied linguistics at the Sorbonne in Paris, linguistics. That's related to programming? Yes, uh, yep. I, I, I'm not a techie. And the message that I would have for everybody is that it doesn't matter at all what your background is, as long as, lo as, long as you're curious, as long as you're focused on learning, as, as long as you respect, uh, of course, people who are techies, who studied computer science. Um, but what's important, that's the most important thing I, um, for example, try to teach my 16-year-old son. What's the most important thing is not to get intimidated, not to get intimidated, not to let technology or sometimes technologists intimidate you. Anybody should be able to understand enough to make any kind of decision that needs to be made in a business, even if they are not techie. Absolutely. I, 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 I like to be sometimes provocative and, and tell people that I don't let the lack of understanding inhibit my opinion. And I know it's a joke, but at, behind it is the idea that if you're running a company, or even if you're not running a company, but you're, you're a business person or you're, you're just interested in technology, you have to make decisions. Respect the technologist, but don't accept that the technologist is not able to explain to you the reason for a decision. And you need to really completely understand it because you can absolutely any decision can be understood and if you cannot understand it it's not your fault it's actually the technologist sometimes that either doesn't explain it well or occasionally tries to keep it fuzzy 
because uh, they don't want you to look at that decision. I feel that anybody can understand the technology enough uh, to do anything they want. And so the main message I have uh, for anybody, uh, students or, or at any point of their career, by the way, is not to get intimidated by other people, including other people more successful than them, by the way, uh, and also by technology. And look at Elon Musk. Uh, he's not a space, uh, a space uh, engineer, certainly. Right? And he's the one who built uh, uh, SpaceX. Uh, I don't think he's a, um, uh, he's, he's a, he doesn't have a formal degree in, in um, engineering of, of, of motors, or um, he might, actually. Uh, that's what I'm not 100% sure. But even if he didn't, I think he would have built Tesla. He's sending rockets into space, but he does not have a background in aeronautical engineering. I know that for sure. And he's the one yeah, who did so, it. Yeah. He's the one who did it. I mean, when we think back to your point about, you know, not getting intimidated, I'm thinking back to Dubai. There were a lot of technologists there. There are finance types there. There are consultants there. And in terms of what I heard, a lot of it was over my head. A lot of it was quite technical. A lot of it was abstract and grandiose about the kind of beautiful uh, utopian world such innovations would bring. And, you know, I, I remain hopeful to see that world. But, but yeah, I mean, a, lo a lot of it the average person couldn't, couldn't quite grasp. Yes, you, should, uh, you shouldn't be intimidated, but there... There is, a t there is a, an investment students will have to make in terms of time and effort to come up to speed on these new technologies. And that involves reading, that involves meeting people in the industry, uh, that uh, might involve certifications, you know, in terms of if any suggestions you can make about what should they do to upskill and uptool. Because the more I look around, a lot of fintech programs they're designed for techies. They expect some prior knowledge of coding. And we have one FinTech uh, certificate here at HKU. Sign up for it. It's free. Uh, I had to put that plug in. Uh, that is intended with the expectation of no prior knowledge. But a lot of FinTech programs, diploma certificates out there, have the expectation of some prior knowledge in the space. And also, uh, things change so quickly. You, you cannot finish your education. You need to continue to learn, um, right. and um, and you need to you need to sometimes uh, force yourself uh, to try a, a new technology. Uh, this is why. This is how I justify always getting the new the new iPhone or the new gadget because I see it as a, 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 a tuition to be confronted to the new technologies uh, out there. But here's, here's what I want to answer when I hear that question. Uh, these days, by the time you put something in a book, it's nearly obsolete already. The live knowledge is not in on dead paper anymore, in my opinion. In other words, um, the place to go is online. And the amount of information you find online uh, on on Discord servers, on Twitter, uh, on on even on TikTok, is incredible. Not only because 
anybody creates content and share their knowledge. I mean, the way you build a reputation these days is by is by sharing your knowledge on social media. Yeah, like we're doing now. Yeah, yeah. like we're doing now exactly. And so, uh, everybody has an incentive, uh, you, me, to to share, to contribute. Uh, you can even call it content marketing if you will. Uh, but uh, so the amount of knowledge and content out there on social media is incredible. And it's not just a content, is that imagine that you can interact with the author of that content live. You could direct message me. Uh, I hope, please, by the audience, by the way, if you have any question, uh, connect with me across all social media. I'm, I might be restricted now on LinkedIn because I reached my, my cap. So now I can only be followed. It's harder to uh, send me an invite. But otherwise, connect with me. You can you can interact with the author of a tweet or a TikTok or an Instagram. So imagine that uh, there is an ongoing conversation instead of a book that is static. There's an ongoing conversation with um, an expert, and you can join that conversation. You can ask questions. You can make commentaries on that knowledge. Social media has so much to offer in that beyond the, the, the fighting and the uh, posturing and the politics, it's incredible. It's a, so to me, and it's also leveling across all culture and all country, by the way. Anybody in any, any country can learn so much if they want to. And that's really incredible when you think about it. So um, I think everybody should, um, should join the conversation, the digital conversation. And that's how they can both learn and contribute by their good questions, their good comments, um, in learning a new field, whether it's a metaverse, whether it's cryptocurrency. One more thing is that uh, the best way to learn is to do. So in other words, if you can buy a headset, uh, you don't need to buy that fancy one. Uh, frankly, $1,500, it's really, it's called pro because it should be bought by companies, not by people. But the Quest 2, $300, when you think about it, what it allows you to do, including joining metaverse including a lot of sports app including games uh, if you want to understand the metaverse i would argue you need to buy a quest 2. if you want to understand crypto and web 3 and nfts you need to buy even a little bit even ten dollars one hundred dollars of crypto and get a couple of free nfts the way to learn is to do is to really participate, not to read so much, in my opinion, is to practice. Uh, it's a very different kind of learning, and that's how we understand a new field. Certainly on the, I mean, I, uh, there's nothing, there's no substitute for on-the-job learning. I mean, I, case in point, I have a master's degree in intellectual property, okay? I was putting together one of my screenplays and then the copyright lawyer I was working with, I mean, I thought previously you just register, log your, you know, uh, script with the Screen Actors Guild, you know, in the U.S., pay your $20, that's it. That does not give you complete protection. You want complete protection, I found out from the lawyer. You've got to go to the copyright office in D.C. and there, it might be a few hundred, might be a few thousand. You want complete airtight nationwide and for practical purposes, global protection. That's what you've got to do. You don't learn these things in school. You, you learn these things from practitioners. And, and I, when it came to crypto, certainly I learned more about crypto when I, 
when I made my first purchase of it and how to use it uh, than, than any of the conversations I'd had before then. I mean, that's what people kept on telling me, get, it, get into it, take the dive, take the plunge. You know, you, your, your learning will rise exponentially once you, once you, uh, once, once you do that. Uh, in the time we've got left, is there anything you feel we haven't covered that you'd like to expand upon? Well, the, 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 the message I like to, to highlight when, when I talk about these topics is that although there are some challenges and there are some negative in every technology, uh, the, the potential for good uh, for both um, crypto, NFTs, Web3, digital diamonds, and the metaverse uh, is, is absolutely, um, I think it is actually underappreciated because it's so easy to make fun of people with a headset on. It's so easy to make fun of people collecting board apes or of, uh, obsessing about uh, Bitcoin price. Uh, it's still a very small group in some ways, and it's easy to make fun of us, of them, and therefore, in my opinion, it is actually underappreciated how deep and how, I argue, positive um, the metaverse, Web3, NFTs, uh, cryptocurrencies is, is going to have. I, I actually think to be a little dramatic, that this is going to be the answer uh, to the climate crisis uh, because we can meet without traveling. That's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And second, uh, to, I hope, I'm going to sound naive a little bit, war. Uh, as I alluded before, if all of your friends are all over the countries and if peoples in Ukraine and Russia, their friends in the metaverse are, their closest friends are not the one necessarily just next door, but they're all over the world. How do you go to war with your friends? So in other words, yes, there is a lowering of the importance of nation states, but that was already started with social media and cryptocurrency. The metaverse is the third, maybe nail in the coffin, maybe not of nation state, but of nation state being so uh, powerful on our lives. And again, I'm from France. In France, uh, the, the role of uh, the government, the role of the country, the role of government is very, very strong, very, less in the US a little bit, right? So I understand how powerful it is, but I also understand how the metaverse, crypto, and social media are powerful counterpowers to the power of nation-states. Uh, some people see it as negative, by the way, and I acknowledge that. For me, it's mostly a source of, 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 uh, of freedom and positive freedom. Certainly in both systems you've got, I mean, I think it's a European system that people there actually believe that government can be a force for good. Government has been completely demonized in the US, certainly since the Reagan years. And uh, but but no, but I see your point that the metaverse stands a chance of creating a truly global village, and that you know people from all over. There, it's a global village. You, therefore, it's harder to hate them, and uh, you know, st stands uh, stands a chance of you know creating a being a solution for 
geo, you know, geopolitics and uh, diplomacy. So um, yeah, that, that's something to uh, hope for, aspirational as it may be. Oh. Bruno Laurent, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, AJ. Come back again.